interest rate picture gets a little clearer, while labor outlook in entertainment and autos stays murky. Motley Fool Money starts now. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me over the airwaves, Motley Fool Senior Analysts, Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. Dylan, how you doing, Dylan? We've got an inside look at quantum computing, a music catalog fetching $200 million, and stocks on our radar. But we are kicking off today with the latest in FedWatch 2023. After meeting this week, the Fed decided to keep rates where they are, maintaining the wait-and-see approach. Ron, it seems like, based on everything we've been getting from the Fed so far, we can bank on one more rate hike this year. That does seem to be the consensus. So, so far, they, they've held interest rates steady this time around, a 22 year high, I will note. Currently stand at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. Now, 12 of 19 officials favor raising rates one more time this year. Seven think they can leave them unchanged. So we don't have, uh, we have a majority, but, but not unanimous view at the moment. Um, and, the Fed officials indicated they expect to keep rates higher for longer. And that's what the markets really did not appreciate hearing. Um, they're, you know, you get them wishing for cuts. And when they hear higher, longer, they sell stocks. And we've seen them come down. But officials do seem more confident that they're going to be able to get down to their 2% goal, 3.7% now. While achieving this so-called soft landing, with you know no sharp economic downturn or slowdown, which would which would be wonderful, uh, they do see inflation. I'm sorry, unemployment ticking up to 4.1 percent from 3.8 percent in August. That's going to be necessary to get the economy slowing um, to where it needs to be. But so far, as long as we can be a little bit patient and live with these higher rates that we're so not used to living with. I think we're going to be okay. I mean, we see in the 10-year, the 10-year currently stands at 4.48%. That's the highest level since 2007. That's not great for stocks. It's not great for borrowers who want to buy a car or perhaps a home. So we just have to live with this new normal for a while. Um, But I think from an economic perspective, we might be okay. Matt, it's NFL season, so I'm going to quote Dennis Green. The Fed is who we thought they were. They continue (laughs) to stick to what they've been telling us. They've been walking their own talk here. And I think it's remarkably consistent. It's also something where it's maybe changing the landscape of what investors should be looking at or have been looking at. It has to. And Ron said it. I mean, look at, yeah, the 10 year Treasury being the highest in 16 years. I mean, think about the world we lived in. From late 2008 through the end of 2021. For more than 12 years, we lived in a world of virtually zero interest rates. Mortgages were cheap, auto loans were cheap, businesses could easily and and cost effectively refinance or roll over debt. I mean, the real cost of debt capital was zero. Free Um, money is my favorite kind of money. I just want to go. I love it too. I I love it. It, but, But in that kind of world, long duration assets, and when I say long, I mean long. Because in theory, you're discounting future cash flows at zero, 
where we were discounting cash flows at zero. Um, so, of course, at the time, it made sense to invest in companies where the future cash flow was way off in the distant future. Um, you're going to invest in risk assets. Zero percent treasury yields basically forced you to. Um, I think you guys might remember the term Tina. There is no alternative to invest in stocks, and I think for 12 years that was really that was the paradigm. No alternative to stocks, and and no alternative to growth stocks in particular. The world has definitely changed. If rates are going to go stay higher for longer, as Ron kind of put it, then guess what? Those future cash flows are going to be worth a lot less today than they were just a few years ago. I think that has big implications for the stock market. Yeah, Matt. For me, it's it's a total rethinking of everything that I came of age financially learning and understanding. I you know basically started investing in the wake of the Great Financial Crisis. I'm all of a sudden having to learn a lot more about Treasuries than I thought uh, because I was all stocks all the time. Um, this is something that I think is affecting the way that people look at what's in their portfolio. It's also I think affecting a lot of businesses that had very debt uh, intensive structures. That's right. That's right. I mean, no doubt. I mean, this is this this is changing the landscape a lot in in a lot of ways, and literally changing the landscape uh, for commercial real estate, especially office. I don't think it's hyperbolic to say it anymore to say that office real estate is in a depression, um, and perhaps its deepest downturn, perhaps even since the Great Depression ninety years ago. Um, I know for one, it's certainly worse than the Great Financial Crisis. Um, how do I know that? CoStar had a report out just yesterday looking at values of office properties um, financed by commercial mortgage-backed securities. Those types of properties have to be appraised every year. Um, so those office properties were appraised lower by an average of 12.8% in 2022 and f- another 14.1% in so far here in 2023. If you go back to the Great Financial Crisis, comparable properties, comparable office values were appraised lower by just 11% in total. So, since the end of 2021, more than $17 billion of value has been wiped out. And that's just office buildings financed by CMBS. It doesn't figure it looking at the office space that's been financed by banks or private lenders, which is a much bigger pie. Two quick anecdotes I have to share of just how bad things are in the office space. WP Carry, it's one of the largest net lease REITs in the market, owns a ton of office. They announced yesterday that they're going to offload their entire portfolio of office buildings, 87 properties, by the end of this year. Um, they're going to sell most of them in a spinoff uh, of a new REIT, but they've managed and owned office properties for decades. They're getting completely out. And then on a micro scale, especially if there are any listeners from Florida, uh, particularly the Jacksonville area, the Wells Fargo Center, it's the largest building in the city of Jacksonville. 37 stories, kind of a beautiful building, kind of defines the skyline of the city. In 2014, uh, it sold for $75 million. Two days ago, it was announced that it's, gonna, it's, it's likely to go under contract for $35 million, which is less than the building's $46.4 million in outstanding debt. Hmm. Office property, the office sector is in a depression. It's definitive now. So, Matt, my question is, you know, look back to 2009, where we said, gosh, in hindsight, it seemed like we should have seen it coming like we we there were there was the writing was on the wall right is the writing on the wall now and we're we're what, sweeping it under the rug or is this something to be really concerned about that will reverberate through the economy through the stock market i think well it's it's certainly having an effect on the on on reits and we can get into that um i would say to answer your question ron it's 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 hard to ignore now just because you know, in 2009, there was at least a path for these office values to get higher. We, we weren't living in this post-pandemic world of 
where the demand and use case for Office was was in doubt, like it was, uh, like it is now. So I think there was always a pathway for commercial real estate landlords and banks at that time to work things out slowly and steadily, and and not have it sort of crush the economy for the long term. Um, we saw office office values actually bounce back. Um, that is not going to be the case this time. And I think for a lot of banks and a lot of financial institutions out there, there are some big concerns. Matt, you mentioned REITs uh, just a second ago. I know. You know, most investors hear a narrative of this space is beaten up. This space is dealing with a lot of tough stuff right now, and think, is there an opportunity here? When you look at the REIT landscape, are there are there interesting opportunities? Are there things that you want to be buying right now? Uh, I absolutely, I think there are, uh, Dylan. But of course, I've been saying that for several months now. <laughs> I've been wrong, <laughs> but I mean, there are some incredibly well-run REITs, um, many that don't have any office exposure whatsoever, that are trading at multi-year lows. Uh, and valuation-wise, some of them are trading at their lowest values um, outside of COVID in more than a decade. Uh, look at Prologis. Uh, it's the largest REIT, owns nothing but industrial assets like warehouses and logistics facilities. They're seeing record rents, uh, record utilization for their assets. It's down 30% from its high. Realty income, famous net lease REIT, phenomenal track record. Its dividend yield is almost 6%. I mean, outside of the COVID crash, that's the highest in almost 10 years. And there's data from uh, Center Square, which I which I follow. They, they do great research on the REIT space. In aggregate, they think REITs are trading at around 80% of their net asset value. Um, that's only happened a couple times in the last 20 years, and it's always been a buying opportunity. So, and by the way, going back to our earlier conversation, REITs REITs are short duration assets. They're generating cash flow today. They're paying dividends today. That's a good place in my mind to be. But I've been certainly been wrong about that at least for the last several months. You know, I hear REITs and I immediately think dividends, which is a space that Matt and I both have spent a lot of time in. You now have competition for dividend stocks in treasuries, as we just mentioned, that you haven't had for a very long time. You have a risk-free 4.5% in a 10-year. That's right. Um, versus a risky asset like a stock at somewhere to between 3 and 6% uh, from a dividend um, perspective, and then potential upside in terms of appreciation or perhaps depreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got competition here that we haven't had in quite some time. Yeah, it's it's a it's a paradigm shift for sure. The millennial investors out there like me are doing a little double take looking at those yields. Sorry uh, if they're coming for your dividend stocks, Ron and Matt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, after the break, we've got a number that helps explain the labor strikes we've been seeing. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined over the airwaves by Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. We're zooming in on labor this week. After a Friday noon deadline passed, the United Auto Workers strike expanded, now includes more plants and more economic impact. Ron, from what we're seeing from UAW leadership and the union's $800 million strike fund, it seems like they have the stomach and the resources to hold this one out for a while. I think you're right, at least for a while. Um, and it seems like things are expanding um, in terms of strikes at GM and Stellantis. Not so much for Ford, though. Progress or, or real quote real progress 
seems to have been made with Ford and the UAW. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. If you recall, the strikes were originally initiated on September 15th at assembly plants in Michigan, Ohio, Missouri. Now we have strikes, I think, that are coming at 38 more locations across 20 states. So this is heating up. The UAW is looking for higher hourly pay, better retirement benefits, cost of living adjustments, um, better wage progression, work-life balance, a lot of things that cost a lot of money. And um, each automaker is different, but in general, they want to try to avoid fixed costs, um, things like traditional pension plans or anything that would make them less competitive. It's been estimated that this could cost $80 billion per automaker over the length of the contract if the UAW were to get everything they want. That sounds high to me. It's probably a little bit of hyperbole, but for sure, this would have a significant impact on profitability to the benefit of workers, and therein lies the debate. This is an incredibly high-profile labor dispute, and it comes in parallel with another one. We see the writers and actors strikes, and there's been some progress. We've seen entertainment leaders like David Zaslav, Bob Iger, and Ted Sarandos joining the conversation. We still don't actually have a deal in place there, and we are also seeing the companies begin to note the effect that they're expecting to hit Warner Brothers Discovery, estimating 300 million to 500 million hit to their adjusted earnings based on what they're seeing so far. Matt, seeing these two disputes together happening at the same time, does it feel like there's something that transcends some of the industry-specific issues and that there's something kind of broader building here? I think so, Dylan. I mean, I'm sounding a bit like a market historian on today's show. I don't want to mean <laughs> to do that, but I mean, look at the look look back at the past few decades. We talked about low interest rates, but we've had rapid globalization, the rise of the internet, growth of technology, super growth in worker productivity across industries. And what did that do for corporate profit margins? Um, if you look at data from Yardeni Research, which tracks uh, the S&P 500 operating and net margins over time, in this past second quarter, S&P 500 operating margins were 11.8%. That's just below the record in 2021, and more than double where they were in 1994. So, corporations have done extremely well. Investors have done well. On the flip side of that, wage growth, as we know, has been sluggish. Up until recently, real incomes didn't show a ton of growth in, in 40 years. You've had a lot of job losses in blue-collar industries. Um, labor's influence kind of continued to wane over that whole period. Well, look, that's starting to change. Um, labor is exerting some serious influence. We talked about UAW, the Hollywood strikes. I mean, look at the deal UPS delivery workers recently got. Look at the labor pressures that Amazon and Starbucks have faced. I mean, if labor can push back just a little bit, and it seems like it's more than a little bit, um, I think it has big implications for corporate profit margins going forward. You, you guys mentioned some of the enormous costs that these companies might be facing. I mean, can these companies be as profitable going forward as they have been in the past? I think that's a, it's a big question. One of the things I think is kind of interesting with this story is we're seeing labor spill into results from companies, even if they aren't necessarily in the middle of disputes themselves. We got uh, earnings season kicked off this week and saw results from FedEx. They are one of the early companies to report in earnings season. They don't have any labor disputes at the moment, but their rival UPS did. And the uncertainty of whether or not they would reach a deal led some customers to move over to FedEx. Ron, the company reported an additional 400,000 packages in a single day due to customer wins. What else jumped out to you in the results looking at stuff from FedEx? 
You you make a good point. So you're going to avoid UPS while they're in a a labor dispute because you want to make sure your package gets delivered. So you switch over to FedEx. I don't know if that market share will persist. I think people move back and forth. Um, But at least for this quarter, um, it certainly helped. Now, the stock is up 50% year to date. It was up strong on this report as well, despite the the fact that revenue is down 6% overall. But they are making some cost-cutting moves that are really impacting the bottom line. They're merging their express and their ground units. That's going to save $4 billion over two years. As a result, operating margins are up pretty significantly to 7.3% from 5.3%. Adjusted earnings up 32% as a result. So, you have a little bit of weakness in the top line, but those cost cuts are really you know, bringing profitability down um, to the bottom line. Uh, not everything is, is perfect. They did talk about a muted peak season. Um, they do see revenue to be flat this fiscal year after previously guiding for an increase. Um, so, there is some weakness if you want to look at FedEx as a bellwether in terms of economic activity, the holiday season um, that will be heating up. There are some um, areas of concern there. They did complete a $500 million accelerated sherry purchase. They think their stock is cheap. 17 times forward guidance, um, not not too bad, but it was cheaper 50% ago. Um, it's had a strong run. <laughs> We're going to stick with the earnings stories and some of the early companies to release. Ron, you mentioned FedEx as a bellwether. Uh, kind of the same story with General Mills. They report early, and we kind of get a sense, Matt, of what we're seeing and what we can expect to see in the grocery aisle from the owner of Cheerios and Dunkaroos. What did you see looking at the company's results? Yeah, that's that's right, Dan. Well, all, on the surface, pretty good. Net, net sales were up 4%. The 4.9 billion uh, gross margin, which is so key to businesses like this, gross margin was up 540 basis points uh, to 36.1 percent. That's that's pretty. That's among the highest they've they've been they've reported recently. But here is where things don't look so great. Operating profit down 14 percent. There was a huge jump in SG&A expenses. Net earnings down 18 percent, mostly due to higher net interest expense. So you can see those two forces are kind of working opposite. And if you dig into the net sales growth, it was really all driven by what companies like General Mills call value realization, which is kind of a combination of price and product mix. That was up six percentage points, but volumes were down two percentage points. Hence, you get the four percent you know net sales growth. This is really common. I was looking recently at Kenview, uh, the recent Johnson and Johnson spinoff, another large consumer staples company. Same thing. Sales growth is all about price and mix now, uh, not volumes. Um, so my worry here is what happens when these companies can no longer push price. Um, because volumes are flat and declining, especially in the consumer staple space, we might see a little bit of sluggish sales growth uh, going forward. So, looking for where the revenue growth is coming, going to be key for a lot of these consumer packaged goods companies. Ron, anything else as you're looking at retail or some of our restaurant concepts, anything like that that you're watching this earnings season? I'm looking at inventories. Inventories have been all over the place for a while. Um, a lot of these retailers have been incorrectly merchandised. They've been discounting. They've been really promotional to get things right. I want to see how that looks in the coming quarter. All right, we'll keep an eye on it. Ron, Matt, we'll see you guys a little bit later in the show. Up next, we've got the story of how supercomputers are informing your weather forecasts for good and bad. Solidarity forever. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. AI is the theme of 2023, but we're all still learning the lingo and understanding what it actually looks like. 
To help understand better, we went straight to an insider, Justin Hotard. He heads up Hewlett Packard Enterprise's high performance computing and artificial intelligence segments. The Motley Fool's Sanmeet Deo spoke with Hotard about the differences between high performance computing and quantum computing, some of the biggest misconceptions around artificial intelligence, and the best ways you can start learning more to understand the AI future. They kicked off with an overview of the foundational technologies that have allowed AI to flourish. For someone who's just heard of Hewlett Packard Enterprises for the first time today, can you describe in simple terms what the high performance and AI segment does? And how about Hewlett Packard Labs? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll start with Hewlett Packard Labs, which for, for uh, many listeners, they probably know who Hewlett Packard is. Um, Hewlett Packard had a, uh, a long history or throughout its history has always had a commitment to advanced research and technology. And labs really plays in that space. And, and the reason uh, it's connected into the high performance computing and artificial intelligence business is a lot of the advanced research we do um, is in collaboration with other research institutions, including uh, governments, the, the United States government, but uh, but also um, other governments around the world or research labs around the world. Uh, and the whole purpose is to look at technologies that aren't you know just nearly in front of us, but might be five, ten, or in some cases even fifteen or twenty years uh, in front. And so that's labs. And then on the high performance computing and, and artificial intelligence intelligence space, um, this is a business that's pretty unique. In fact, there's only a few players in the world um, that uh, deliver these kinds of systems. And these are very specialized systems to run really w- large workloads. And so a good example is um, our supercomputers power most of the world's uh, weather systems today. You may have heard that uh, the United States Department of Energy um, has has the world's fastest computers for conducting scientific research. Uh, we we power all of those systems with our technology today, um, but also in in, uh, in other places as well. We have the Europe's fastest supercomputer as an example. And and the reason this is all relevant is these big systems and supercomputers are actually have the foundations of technologies we need to uh, to uh, train and, and tune and ultimately deploy artificial intelligence. Um, and in fact, we've been working in artificial intelligence with many of our customers, both in the public sector, but also um, in the uh, in the private sector, you know, commercial enterprises for for many, many years, uh, well ahead of the boom that's uh, that's happened over the last few months. Could we attribute the better weather forecasting to your high performance computers? If, if it's better, you can definitely give us credit. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So I'm curious, how did you personally get into this field, and what's kind of like the one aha or wow moment they experienced in your journey with HPE? Yeah, so I've, I've been at HPE for about eight years, um, uh, and uh, spent my career uh, really in tech. I was a I always joke I was a I was a, a, a marginal electrical engineer in, in undergrad and and therefore had to go get a, a business degree to be to, to be useful in the uh, in the tech industry. But uh, but when I came to HPE, my my focus was actually on helping uh, build our uh, our computing business. We had just separated from Hewlett Packard, the company that still makes printers and PCs, and uh, and we saw high performance computing as a as an area that was going to continue to grow in part for. You know, because we saw the opportunities in areas like artificial intelligence. So I worked on an acquisition of a company called uh, SGI back then. And then shortly after that, I got into running our standard server business. And that's, you know, for the, for the core of the company, that's our biggest business. We, we power, you know, we have servers that power a lot of the cloud applications and services that you might be using. Uh, we power a lot of the um, telecommunications uh, uh, providers. So, uh, your different telcos around the world, of course, they, they become as much an internet service provider as they have a voice service provider. And, uh, and so in that time, 
you know, I, I was uh, spending time really in the core of the business and got, uh, when the opportunity came up to run this part of the specialized business, I, I jumped right in. And I think, I think what's fascinating about this, this business or what's kind of excited me the most is this cutting edge technology really makes a tremendous difference in our lives. I mean, one of the most obvious examples is um, if you think about how quickly we brought the COVID vaccines to market, um, that was because of our supercomputers uh, and work uh, and, and, and other tech, other partners in the technology industry working closely with the U.S. Department of, of, uh, of Energy and, and, and then, of course, with the, uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturers to accelerate testing and simulate testing on computers, which, you know, really, you know, if you think about the arc of, uh, of vaccinations and, and, uh, and what we were able to do, you know, to get back to some, you know, start to get back to normal with, with, um, after the pandemic, it was a, it was a big part of it, but you know, there's many, many other examples, including weather, which we've already talked about. That's exciting. So it's, it's impacting our daily lives and we don't even know about it almost. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's been a foundational part of, uh, you know, what we're, what we're doing in, in, uh, scientific discovery and research. Um, and I think when we look, you know, if you look back, let's say 10 years from now, you'll find the current, the current work that's being done on these systems is, uh, you know, is going to enable things like, uh, you know, a, a healthier planet, you know, through, um, um, through looking at carbon neutral technologies and, and, uh, certainly with renewables, um, but also areas, uh, like personalized medicine, you know, thanks to, uh, to some of the, uh, the research and, uh, and advancement that's happening on these computers today. And as you said, of course, hopefully a better, more localized weather forecast. <laughs> Exciting. So as a, t- bit of a tech novice in terms of all the alphabet soup of, of tech of terminology in the tech world. What's the difference between high performance computing and quantum computing? Is there a difference? There, there's actually a really big difference. And, and, uh, if you think about high performance computers are in their simplest term are, are really large and extremely fast calculators of data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so you know, our, our fastest computer can do, um, a billion billion calculations per second, and so that's the exascale computer that we announced last year called Frontier uh, in the United States at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. That's a great calculator. The quantum computing is a bit different, still very early, um, but what what quantum is good at telling you is these are all the scenarios that could happen at once, um, and because you can look at all the scenarios in parallel. Um, it, it has some really good applications. There's a lot of a lot of the excitement and early applications have been around um, cybersecurity and how you can encrypt things that are uh, almost impossible to break, or on the other side, how you can use quantum computers to decrypt something much much faster than a, uh, a, a typical or traditional high performance computer, which has to work through every calculation. I'm really fascinated by the work that you're doing with NASA. If you could tell us a little bit more about that, that'd be really cool. I love space, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's quite a bit of work in space. I mean, I think obviously, you know, there's um, uh, there's been a ton of uh, a ton of work in this area, and we've been a you know long partner with um, uh, you know with uh, with NASA, and and uh, and of course, you know, we're, we're excited about what the private sector is doing in this space as well. But what what we see really with um, you know, with these opportunities is whether it's through accelerating material research, processing data up in space. So one of the things that we we announced, we've announced two computers, Spaceborne, Spaceborne and Spaceborne 2, which actually provide high-performance computing and supercomputing up in space. Uh, and this is really critical because this allows us to, or allows, you know, certainly scientists to do testing in space and actually process the results there 
which you know which may prove impossible to bring back because they can't bring the materials back or the you know the tests they're running may be compromised by the time they try to run and analyze the results in space and so uh, so that's just one example of the kinds of things we can do with uh, with high performance computing and it's it's a great example of of why um, you know we were talking about cloud earlier why the cloud uh, works for a lot of applications but but the edge you know, this is effectively a great story about the edge right <laughs> why why yeah. you want processing at the edge <laughs> it's like the ultimate edge <laughs> the ultimate exactly <laughs> exactly so are there any popular myths or misconceptions about high performance computing or ai that you like to like set straight that people aren't getting Right. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things. I mean, I, I think one is, um, I think there's a big myth about, uh, you know, there's a big concern about AI taking us, taking over and taking control of the humans. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, that, we've all, we've all watched the movies and the, and read the science fiction books. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably a long ways away. I think, I think the reality is, is that today, you know, the, the technology's best as a, as an accelerator for human capability, right. As a, a human assistant, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the scientists, the technologists, the, the, the physician, you know, the, any of those people with AI are going to be far more effective at what they do. Um, you know, but I also, I also harken back to realizing that every time we have a technology cycle, um, you know, mobile communication, the internet, um, you know, it, it can be used for bad as well as good. Right. And, and, um, and so obviously we've got to be thoughtful about what those things are and practical about them, but the benefits are so much more compelling than the, you know, than the costs. I mean, the ability to, I mentioned the acceleration of vaccine, I mean, the ability to look at, um, drugs that won't pass, uh, you know, won't pass uh, approval because they may have an adverse impact on too many people. But now recognizing that maybe they can heal a, a set of the population without adverse impacts and be able to provide more personalized medicine is one example. The acceleration to um, to helping our, our planet become healthier, right, through carbon neutrality and, and renewables. One of the things we're doing in the uh, in the high performance uh, computing space right now is and working closely with. Um, commercial partners as well as researchers is how do we make wind farms more efficient, right? And, and it's a, it's actually a really complex problem that a supercomputer and artificial intelligence can help help solve. And and uh, and I think there'll be many many more things. There there are many many more things like that that will come from artificial intelligence. So uh, let alone making our you know making our lives easier, right? Just automating tasks and and uh, you know and and uh, and replacing things that are that are mundane maybe that you know that give us more time and capability to spend uh, spend that more valuably so so i think that's that's probably the biggest myth that i see and um and and yes we need to be resp- you know responsibility is a key thing it's something we talked about our labs organizations and our labs team has been working on for years is responsible and ethical use of ai um you know we absolutely need to be thoughtful about regulation we need to enforce the laws that we have against artificial intelligence, uh, use cases as well, um, and be thoughtful about, you know, really thoughtful about where regulation makes sense. But, but I think we need to recognize that there's, there's so many, so many benefits to this technology as we look ahead. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like where you say you kind of have a future view of what's, what's, what's coming in the world, which is really, uh, interesting. So if our listeners want to kind of get in more involved with or learn more about AI, high performance community, like where do they start? Any fun resources or beginners guys that you could offer? Yeah. I mean, I think first, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say come to our website, rigidhp.com. We've got a ton of, of information. We've got uh, primers and, and, uh, we've got tools to get started. In fact, depending on where, our listeners are, if they're looking to start an AI project, actually, we've got 
um, software that uh, that makes it really easy to, to start building your own models. And you can actually take that software and you can run it in a public cloud. You can run it um, on a computer or you know, your own private cloud if you have that. But if you want to just get the basics of AI, we have those resources too. And actually, you know, then the other thing I would say is, um, you know, I'd, I'd look at your, I'd actually look at some of the areas where um, AI is being used today, right? I mean, absolutely play with the, you know, some of the, the chat bots that are out there, use it in search. Um, I think just playing around and learning is the, is the most important thing. And, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of the start of the internet. You know, there were, there, the early use cases were, were maybe interesting and exciting, but, but what we do today, or certainly what we did 10 years after the, you know, the internet became um, a household term is, is very different than what we did initially. But it comes from people playing with it, learning, and then thinking about the possibilities and applying them to their own, to their work and lives. And, you know, and then, and then last thing I'll put a plug in for HPE is, is, uh, you know, for those of you that work with us, reach out to us, right? We're happy to, happy to be a partner in that. We can help you talk about how your data works and, and, and how it's, how you need to get it organized because there are really some great, you know, some great things you can do. But, but we realize that uh, lots of people are, you know, when you cut through the buzz, lots of people are at a, at a pretty standing start in this, in this space. And we're eager to be helpful as much as we can. If you're worried about an AI future, fear not. Motley Fool Money is made by humans for humans at least for now. And if you're a fellow human looking for stock ideas, our analysts at Motley Fool Stock Advisor have compiled a list of five stocks whose prices have tanked, but still have strong fundamentals and potential growth ahead. Just one example is a company that lost more than three-quarters of its value, despite showing surging revenue. The team is revealing this stock, along with four more, in our new Five Pullback Stocks report, available for free only to Stock Advisor members. Simply go to fool.com pullback to learn about these stock picks. And if you're listening to today's radio show as a podcast, we'll drop a link to fool.com slash pullback in the show notes. Coming up next, we've got stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All the small things, true care, truth brings. I'll take one lift, your ride, best trip. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. We're going to get to radar stocks in a second, but first, I had to talk about the story, guys. Pop singer and multi-platinum selling artist Katy Perry sold the rights to five albums released between 2008 and 2020, including her mega-hit Teenage Dream to a music rights company for a reported $225 million. Matt, she joins the ranks of Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, and David Bowie, who have all sold music catalogs for over $200 million. Is content king? Is that the takeaway here? I guess it has to be. I mean, I think that's a huge... I'm not a huge Katy Perry fan, and that seems like a huge price to pay, but maybe I get it. I mean, if you look at Michael Jackson, 1985, he paid $47.5 million for the, I think, almost the entire Beatles catalog. And if you adjust that for inflation, it comes out to about $150 million in today's dollars. So, you know, Beatles, Katy Perry, uh, you know. <laughs> I've got to say, I just think Jackson made a pretty shrewd purchase, or is his state now, I guess, still owns it. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's, it, this has been going on for a long time. And yes, content continues to be king and very expensive. Yeah, Carlisle certainly thinks that there's some money to be made here. Their litmus music is behind some of these purchases. They've deployed more than $3 billion since 2018 in the sports media and entertainment space. So uh, they, wow. they're putting money to work. They see something special here. 
You know, Ron, I was going to say, when Dylan's catalog sold for over $200 million, it was reportedly generating $16 million a year in revenue. 13 times sales sounds like it's Ron Gross territory. That, that sounds <laughs> I like it might be I don't, pay any, I don't pay for sales. I pay for cash flow. <laughs> All right, let's get over to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Fairfax Financial, FRFHF, or Dan, on the Toronto Stock Exchange, FFH. It's a recommendation from my friends over at our Value Hunter service. They're a holding company, two main lines of business, insurance and investing. Um, they often go hand in hand. In this case, um, Fairfax has a $57 billion investment portfolio. Uh, CEO is a very skilled investor, Prem Watson, often referred to as the Canadian Warren Buffett. No one is Warren Buffett, but okay, he's the Canadian Warren Buffett. He has an amazing 25.7% annual compounding of book value over the last 25 years. So he's very talented. The insurance business is finally on track. New management came in in 2010. It's now profitable, wasn't profitable in the past. So you've got strong insurance operations at the same time as strong investing operations. They're actually benefiting from the higher interest rate environment only trading slightly above book value. Uh, it could have some nice upside if my value hunter friends uh, are correct about the valuation. All right, I'm going to kick this one to our Warren Buffett behind the glass, Dan Boyd. A question about Fairfax Financial. Canadian Warren Buffett, Ron, <laughs> what? Wow, that is, that is pretty wild. <laughs> He's a talented man, Dan. Mr. Watson. Yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a comparison. It's a lot to live up to. Uh, Matt, what is on your radar this week? So, Dylan, I'm looking at Nike, uh, ticker NKE. Um, they report results next week, and the market is not optimistic. Uh, and neither am I. I mean, there's been some pretty bad news out there. Uh, you guys have seen it from Foot Locker, Dick Sporting Goods, other retailers. Uh, so, the stock is trading almost 50% below its high, but it's also trading for under 25 times forward earnings, which is not cheap. But if you look back over the roughly last 30 years or so, there's my market historian stuff again. Um, <laughs> this, that's been a pretty good time to buy Nike. Um, I also love that the company's made a div the dividend a big focus. They've uh, just about doubled the payout over the last five years. So I'm watching next week pretty closely. This might be a time to get uh, find a bargain in Nike shares. Dan, do you have something that could bring Matt into the present or future with a question about Nike? <laughs> So, Matt, are you like a like a, a sneaker guy? Do you have like a big closet full of Nikes somewhere in your house that you keep in pristine condition? No, I'm not a sneakerhead, Dan. As you know, I, I do keep a ton of comic books in closets and in, in hopefully pristine condition, but not not shoes. Does Nike make comic books? <laughs> not as not that I'm aware not of. Yet. Dan. Not yet. Okay. Sounds like an opportunity. Okay. Uh, Dan, are you going to go to the Great White North or just do it? I got to tell you, man, I'm very familiar with Nike and their brand. I am not familiar with this Fairfax company whatsoever. And the whole Canadian Warren Buffett <laughs> thing has got my interest uh, levels right. very high Ooh, right wow. now. So I'm going to go Fairfax. Nice. I never thought I'd have to say it, but I guess Nike has to work on its branding. I think you just got outdone <laughs> by Ron Gross there. <laughs> Unbelievable. No oh, love to see it. Well, Matt, Ron, thanks for being here, bringing your radar stocks. Dan, thanks, thank you for weighing in. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.